George. Well, good evening, everyone. We're going to be in John chapter 12. So if you've been with us over the summer, you realize that we are very quickly working our way through the gospel of John, taking a chapter on every single sermon that we've gone through. So we are at chapter 12 tonight. And from chapter 12 on, we enter into the last week of Jesus' life. So that's to just give a little context as we step into tonight's sermon. We are entering into the last week of Jesus' life on earth from John 12 through to the end. So John chapter 12, if you have a Bible, it'd be really helpful if you were to open to it because as we work through this sermon, we always refer back and forward to some of the verses. If you do not have a Bible, it's on the screen behind me. So this is God's word starting at verse one. Six days before the Passover celebration began, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus. The man He had raised from the dead. A dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. Martha served, and Lazarus was among those who ate with him. Then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance. But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, said, That perfume was worth a year's salary. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. Not that he cared for the poor. He was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. Jesus replied, leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. When all the people heard of Jesus' arrival, they flocked to see him and also see Lazarus, the man Jesus had raised from the dead. Then the leading priests decided to kill Lazarus too, for it was because of him that many of the people had deserted them and believed in Jesus. The next day, the news that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem swept through the city. A large crowd of Passover visitors took palm branches and went down the road to meet him. They shouted, praise God, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and rode on it, fulfilling the prophecy that said, don't be afraid, people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming, riding on a donkey's colt. And let's jump to verse 17. Many in the crowd had seen Jesus call Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead, and they were telling others about it. That was the reason so many went out to meet him, because they had heard about his miraculous sign. Then the Pharisees said to each other, there's nothing we can do. Look, everyone has gone after him. Then if we drop down to verse 23, Jesus was saying, Now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a pleasant harvest of new lives. Those who love their lives in this world will lose it, Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Anyone who wants to serve me must follow me because my servants must be where I am. And the Father will honor anyone who serves me. Now my soul is deeply troubled. Should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? But this is the very reason I came. Father, bring glory 
to your name. And then finally, verse 37, but despite all the miraculous signs Jesus had done, most of the people still did not believe in him. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray one more time. Father God, we know some of this story or we're familiar with this story. But I ask now that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you will come and you will bring this to life. Will you awaken our affections for you? Will you awaken our senses tonight? Regardless if we're tired after Sligo or we're just tired after our week, or we're just tired for whatever reason, or it's back to normality tomorrow morning, and our minds are a billion miles from this sermon. God, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you will help us to connect with you, because if we get this sermon, if we get what you are saying to us and want to say to us, I believe this will change and transform lives and hearts in this place. So will you come, Holy Spirit? Will you be our teacher, Holy Spirit? Open our ears, open our hearts to your truth. And we would ask these things in your name for your glory and everyone said, Amen. Amen. Okay, so in first one of chapter 12, we are taken to a location. We're taken to Bethany. And Bethany is 1.5 miles east of the capital city, Jerusalem. So that'll become important in a little minute. And there's a subtle little contrast that goes on in verse 1 because John presents us with this Passover that's six days away. So you've got this Passover story, but then you also have this dinner story in the immediate context of the first few verses. So you have a Passover that's six days away, and you have a group of people around this table, and John goes to the bother to tell you who was on that guest list for that story. Now that might seem really insignificant and not all that important, but it's a really important lens for us to look through because what John wants us to do is to compare and contrast. Compare the Passover meal with this meal that's happening here in John chapter 12 and compare the group of people that are around this table with one person and that one person is going to be Mary. So you have to compare both these meals one that is happening immediately in this chapter, one that is going to be six days later, and then you want to compare Mary with everyone else around this table. So it's a really interesting little passage. We get to hear the story, and then we get four different vantage points in this passage. So four different perspectives or four different views as you work your way through this story. So we're six days before the Passover festival. The Passover festival, if you were a Jewish person, was a massive, massive deal. Because from John chapter 12, if you were to go back 1,500 years, you find yourself in the Old Testament. You find yourself in the book of Exodus. And you find yourself bondage, in bondage, a slave in Egypt. You had this nation called Egypt who was the superpower of the day and they had taken God's people and they had held them as captives. But God cares about his people. He hears the cries of his people and God has a plan to rescue his people. That's the story where he sends Moses. It's also the story where he sends 10 plagues. And we all know the last plague is the plague of death. And the only way to escape 
the death was through a substitute, was through the substitute of a lamb or a Passover lamb. So that lamb would have to be killed, its blood have to be painted on the doorposts. It was the only way for you to escape death. And for 1,500 years, every single year, the Jewish people went to the capital city, Jerusalem, with their lamb. And that is where they would sacrifice their lamb. So every year for 1,500 years, you met in the capital city of Jerusalem and you celebrated redemption. You celebrated freedom. You celebrated your national deliverance by taking that lamb to the temple, killing it, sacrificing it, and then bringing that lamb back home for a Passover meal. So it's kind of like what we do at Christmas with our turkeys, only this is Easter and we do it with lamb. And I'm not going to lie to you. Like you had thousands, if not millions of people. Like they came from all over to meet in the capital city. It was crowded and packed and every single Jewish family took a little lamb along to be slaughtered. And I don't know about you, but that sounds awful gory, isn't it? Little lammy going and getting slaughtered with all its lammy little friends. It's bloody and it's gory and it's not nice. It's horrific. But that's the point. It's supposed to be horrific because sin is horrific and the consequences to sin is horrific. And the sacrifice or the cost so that we can escape death is bloody and horrific. But that's all a bit horrific. That's all a bit gory. That's all a bit bloody. And that's six days away. So let's go on a little lighter note. Let's come back to the meal, not the Passover meal. Let's come back to the meal that's happening immediately in this chapter because the meal in this chapter is all fun and laughter. And we like that. That's better. It's all celebration and life because our boy Lazarus is at this party. And he quite literally is the life and the soul of this party because one chapter previously, he was dead like dead, dead, dead and buried for four days, dead. And here he is, larger than life, sitting around the table. And it's all fun and laughter. You see the little comparison there in those first couple of verses between the Passover meal and this meal, between life and death. There's life in this passage, but in six days' time, there's going to be death. There's going to be a Passover. There's going to be a cross as we enter into Jesus' last few days on the earth. So we need to look at this passage through that lens, the lens of life and the lens of death, as we try to unpack this together. So here we are in the meal. In the meal, in verse 3, you have Mary that walks towards Jesus and the disciples at the table. In our culture, we're like, so what? A woman approaches the table. But you have to remember the context of where this is. So this is back in New Testament times. This is an exceptionally male-dominated world, and a woman would never be permitted to come towards a table of other men unless she was serving. Here she is breaking. This is Mary breaking away from traditions. Breaking away from traditions, risking her reputation to approach the table. More specifically, risking her reputation to get to Jesus. And she's not carrying a plate of sandwiches. She's not carrying one of those freshly baked pavlovas. 
She's not even being subtle in the passage. She walks towards Jesus, shock horror, with a bottle of perfume. Not just any bottle of perfume, an expensive bottle of perfume, a 12-ounce or one-pint jar of expensive perfume made from the essence of nard. Nard, we reckon, is like an Indian root herb, and that's where you get this perfume from. So it's kind of like an oily-type perfume, exceptionally expensive. And if you noticed in verse 5, it tells you how much that was worth. It tells you it was the equivalent of a year's wage. A whole year's wage. And probably in Bible times, it's the equivalent of a salary of 10,000 pounds. It's a lot of money. It's a very, very expensive bottle of perfume that Mary carries towards Jesus' feet. And we have to note again that a woman in these days would not have been privileged to earn such a salary. Like, this is not a good place to be, ladies. Like, we're campaign, we campaign for um, equality in the gender pay gap. Like, back in these days, you didn't even get to earn a salary. So it's likely that this is a family heirloom that has been passed down from generation to generation. It is most likely that this is Mary's life savings. So like her inheritance, the fair, this bottle of perfume is it. And it's sealed in such a way that the only way to open this bottle is to break it or to smash it. She didn't get to crack open the lid and pour out a little and then screw on the lid again. You had to break this jar and when it was broke, all the contents came out. It wasn't like you could save some, pour out some and save some for later. Give a little to Jesus now and keep more to myself, she breaks this bottle and this perfume, this year's salary, this family heirloom, her life savings, her life inheritance disappears just like that. And it's all over Jesus' feet. And it's all over her hair. And it's all over the floor. And the fragrance of that is all around the room. You've got the same story that's told in Matthew and Luke. And in their, their accounts, we're told that the bottle was so big that it could have covered Jesus' whole body. Not just his feet, but his whole body. Okay, so that's the what happened bit in our story. Now we need to look at the vantage points that we get in this. And in these verses, from around the table, we get four different vantage points. I wonder, did you see them as you worked your way through it? So vantage point number one is from Martha. What's Martha doing? Well, Martha's busy. Someone has to be busy. Someone's always busy. Martha's busy. Martha is busy in the kitchen. She's busy preparing food. She's busy fussing. She's busy arranging. She's busy folding napkins. When all of a sudden, Martha smells perfume. But not just any perfume. This smells exotic. This smells expensive. So she puts down the little napkin that she's folding and she goes out to see what this fragrance is that's going up her nostrils. And as she walks out, she sees Mary on the floor with Jesus and this perfume smashed all over the floor. John doesn't tell us, but in Luke's account, we read that Martha is fuming, like she's proper mad. She's proper mad. Not because Mary has broken away from the traditions, the cultural traditions of the day, and as actually with the men around the table. She's not fuming because Mary has actually smashed this bottle of expensive 
perfume and it's all over the floor. She's mad because Mary isn't in the kitchen helping her fold napkins. Can you imagine the waste of this opportunity? This is an opportunity to impress Jesus. This is one of those good China type moments. This is the good room moment in our story. This is an opportunity to impress Jesus and the disciples with the world famous Jewish hospitality. And we need all hands on the pump in the kitchen, not Mary's hands elbows deep in perfume. They wanted to give Jesus and the disciples a substantial meal. Send them away with full belly. Send them away resting as they step into the Passover week. What a waste. What a waste of opportunity. Funnish point number two then is the disciples. The disciples see the exact same event unfold and according to the other gospel accounts, they are shocked. In fact, the word they use is they are indignant. Their meal was interrupted the moment that Mary walked towards them carrying something other than a plate of sandwiches. They gasp as Mary breaks this bottle and in an culturally unladylike manner uses her hair as a towel to wipe the feet of Jesus. They are livid because of the extravagant, over-the-top affection that Mary is showing towards Jesus. They see this as a waste. A waste because they see chapter 12 as a chance to rest and to enjoy that good food that someone is cooking up in the kitchen. And up until a moment ago, we could smell some nice smells coming out from there. Now all we can smell is this expensive perfume that's all over the floor. Their night has been interrupted. Their night has been spoiled. What a waste. What a waste. The third vantage point that we get is Judas. Judas is in our story and he looks on and he is shocked and he sees this whole event as a waste as well. The reason he sees it as a waste is because he goes, well, couldn't this bottle of perfume, like if you're going to smash it on the floor, Mary, you would have been better to sell that bottle of wine or bottle of perfume and give the proceeds of that to the poor. We need to care about the poor. That's Judas in this passage. And it sounds quite noble. Sounds quite noble. Because remember, we're six days away from the Passover. And it was customary in this time to give gifts towards the poor. So it would be proper that this bottle of perfume was gifted to someone who was poor. Or it's sold and the proceeds of that given to the local orphanage or local charity. That's what should have happened. The problem with that is that Judas doesn't really care about the poor, but he does care about the money. He cares about the money because he's the treasurer, and he could do a little creative withdrawal from time to time, as he just would steal money from the disciples' bank that he looked after. So if this money, if this perfume was sold, he could take a cut from that money. And all he sees, literally, is money soaking into the floor or evaporating into the air as Mary has been so wasteful with this gift. The fourth vantage point we get is actually Mary's. What's Mary doing in this passage? She sees this as an opportunity to meet with Jesus. She sees this as an opportunity to pour out everything she has, literally 
like literally pour out everything she has at the feet of Jesus in the most extravagant, in the most lavish display of worship. She doesn't care about tradition. She doesn't care about her reputation. She just wants to get to the feet of Jesus and give everything that she has. Everyone else in this passage sees this as a waste. Martha sees it as a waste. The disciples see it as a waste. Judas sees it as a waste. They see the immediate context of that meal, the meal that they are having, or the meal that they're trying to prepare, or the meal that was so rudely interrupted with Mary. They see that as the most important or the most significant meal. But here's the point of chapter 12. The bigger meal or the bigger deal is still to come. The bigger meal or the bigger deal is the Passover and it is what Jesus is going to do at the Passover. And the focus is supposed to be on Jesus. Instead, you've got Martha and disciples and Judas focused just on the immediate context. Notice that Jesus doesn't rebuke Mary. He doesn't shear away. He doesn't say, hey, like, Calm it down. He doesn't do that. In verse 7, he says, leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Do you get the significance? Do you get the weight? I hope the weight of this is starting to fall on us tonight. What Jesus is saying is this is the last meal. This meal in Bethany is the last meal that we're going to have together. This is going to be the last opportunity that Mary or anyone around that table has to worship Jesus in this most extravagant way. In eight days' time, Jesus will be dead. In eight days' time, Jesus will be dead and he will be buried. And what's going to be the talking point then? Like, do you think we're going to be talking in eight days' time about, about the meal? You think we're going to be talking about what was on the menu? Do you think we're going to be talking about how those nice little floral napkins were folded in such an elegant way? Do you think that's going to be in anyone's radar in eight days' time? Or are we going to be talking about the night that we missed an encounter with Jesus? The night that we missed worshiping Jesus? The night that we missed an opportunity to pour out everything we had and worship Jesus? But here are people that are too busy in the kitchen. Here are people that are too busy judging a woman for breaking with cultural traditions. Here are people that are too busy counting pound signs. If there is ever a moment, ever a moment to sit at the feet of Jesus and just stop, just to be still, just to rest, just to pour out everything you had, it was this moment in chapter 12. Jesus can be right in front of you. That's what's happening in this passage. Like Jesus is in the midst of this. Jesus is right in front of everyone in this story of chapter 12. Jesus can be right in front of you, but you can miss Jesus right in front of you. Does that make sense? Jesus is there, but we're so distracted and we're so busy with everything else that's going on around us that we miss Jesus. We can do that in church. Jesus can be here, but we can be so busy doing that we actually miss Jesus. 
So busy thinking throughout worship, so distracted through worship, so busy and distracted through our week that we have Jesus right in front of us, but we actually miss Jesus right in front of us. Here's the bigger shock in this passage. It's not the shock that someone cracks open a bottle of perfume that is a year's salary. It is the fact that no one else other than Mary comes to Jesus and just falls at his feet. Why didn't everyone just come and fall at the feet of Jesus? Why didn't the disciples do that? Why didn't Lazarus do that? We don't know what they talked about around this table before Mary so rudely gate crashes the men's ministry group in chapter 12. I wonder, was the Passover the big talking point? The excitement of the yearly festival? wonder was that the big talking point? Or was Lazarus the big talking point? Like, can you imagine a guy who in the previous chapter was dead is now the life and the soul of your men's curry night? And here he is. I'd have a billion questions to ask him. It's easy to be distracted and busy by other things that we miss Jesus. We miss that encounter or we miss that opportunity to worship or to pour out everything or to go deeper with him because we hold something else. I don't know what it is you're holding up. I don't know what it is is your bottle of perfume, but there's just something else that we're not willing to break or smash or pour out because that's the thing that we hold up in front of us and we hold that more dearly than anything else. So as you sit here tonight or if you listen to this in a podcast, at some other point, what is the thing that is holding you back from an encounter with Jesus or a relationship with Jesus or to go deeper with Jesus? What is the one thing that is holding you back? I doubt you've been to a recent dinner invite and following the wine and cheese course that your host then removed your shoes and socks and got their best cologne and poured it over your feet. If that's the type of people you hang out with, they're quite weird people, that was quite a weird party. We don't do that in our culture. It was very common, though, in this culture to do that. And the reason they did it in this culture was they would pour oil on people's feet or on their head to show respect or honor or loyalty or devotion to the most important person at the table. The most important person at the table. Who was the most important person? The disciples are always arguing about who's the most important person. Maybe Lazarus was the most important person around that table. But there's one person in that party that has her eyes locked on, her focus locked on, her heart locked on, her devotions locked on, her loyalty locked on, her affections locked on Jesus, and that is Mary. This is a passage about cost, the cost of a bottle of perfume. But it's more than that. It's more about a cost of following Jesus. So we're going to the last point. It is about the cost of following Jesus. There's another little vantage point, a fifth vantage point that we get to see in this here. And it's a vantage point of a crowd. You see them dipping in and out of our story from time to time. They're a little bit hidden in the passage. But they dip in and out all along the way. The first time we see them is in verse 9. They flocked to see Jesus and to see Lazarus too. So there's a crowd that's wanting to see Jesus and this guy that's been raised from the dead. They pop up again in verses 12 to 19. This time they're singing songs. 
Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the King of Israel. And the, and the crowd pop up one more time in verses 20 to 36. This time they're listening to Jesus preach. They're listening to a sermon. They are listening to Jesus talk about his suffering and talk about his death. And in verse 26, you will hear Jesus say, whoever serves me must follow me and where I am, my servants also will be. But as we come to the end of the chapter, notice that the crowd kind of seemed to have stepped back a little bit. They've backed away from Jesus. So keen at one point, but then all of a sudden they kind of disappear. In fact, if you look at verses 37 to 50, the little title above that section says, The Unbelieving People. What happened to the people? What happened to the people in our story? Why were they so keen one minute and then all of a sudden they're not keen? And they just back away. Why were they so excited to see Jesus and now all of a sudden they're making their excuses and they're backing away? I guess the question is, were, were they simply fans of Jesus or were they followers of Jesus? Because there's a difference of being a fan or a follower of Jesus. If you were to hear some guy called Jesus was outside on my ladies with some other guy called Lazarus who was dead yesterday and is now alive today, I dare say we would go outside and see what all the fuss is about. Or if you heard that some guy called Jesus, who's a king, is riding on a donkey of all things down the woodstock, I dare say that we would just run out the door and see what all the fuss is about. Or if some guy called Jesus was to do an open-air sermon down at C.S. Lewis Square and the rain was to stay off, I dare say that we would go and hear this famous preacher. If not even just out of curiosity, we would go and hear him. I think we'd listen to what he had to say until he starts talking about suffering. Until he starts talking about following him. And following him means counting a cost. I wonder what you do in the passage, because this is a chapter that's to do with cost, the cost of truly following after Jesus. Not been a fan of Jesus, but following Jesus. So you listen to the sermon, you listen to the sermon tonight, and you get the suffering bit and the cost bit, the cost bit of true discipleship or true worship, and you hear Jesus talking about suffering and death. Would you sign up or would you walk away? Put yourself in the sandals of someone in chapter 12 of this story. If you're standing listening to Jesus, Old New Testament times, we liked Jesus raising people from the dead. That's kind of cool. But I'm not sure about this Jesus that's saying count the cost. Would you sign up and follow Jesus or would you make your excuses? Uh, Jesus... I'll be back in a wee jiffy. I think my camel is parked in a double yellow line. And I just need to go and move it. I'll be right back in a wee minute. Jump on the camel and go as fast as the camel will go. Would you sign up or would you run? When we start talking about cost. I guess it's easy to be a fan. It's easy to dip in and out when it suits it's easy to dip in and out of Willfield when it suits. Because being a fan doesn't cost. 
David Platt has a quote that says this, radical obedience to Christ is not easy. It's not comfort, not health, not wealth, and not prosperity in this world. Radical obedience to Christ risks losing all these things, but in the end, such risks find its reward in Christ. And he is more than enough for us. The road that leads to heaven is risky, lonely, and costly in this world, and few are willing to pay the price. Following Jesus involves losing your life and finding new life in him. In chapter 12, we're six days away from Jesus' death. And on that moment, on that cross, we will see Jesus pour out not expensive perfume. He will actually pour out his life blood on a cross. In chapter 12, we have Mary who is pouring out this gift, this costly gift for someone who totally deserves it. But on a cross, you have Jesus pouring out his life for people like you and me who absolutely don't deserve it. The question as we finish Are you a follower or a fan? I don't know how often you come to the seven. I don't know how often you listen to podcasts. I don't know how often you have been in this service. Maybe it's your first time or maybe you've been here for months and months and months or years and years. And you just keep walking out at the end of the service. Are you a fan or are you a follower? C.T. Studd is this really famous quote that goes like this. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. As we come to an end, I want to ask you a couple of questions. And I ask myself this. You know, when I preach, I'm always preaching to myself. I'm not just going, hey, you guys need to get this, get with the program. I'm saying this to myself as well. What is holding you back? What is holding you back? What is stopping you from coming to Jesus? What is stopping you from having a relationship with Jesus? What is stopping you or holding you back from having an encounter with Jesus or going deeper with Jesus or being more intimate with Jesus or being a follower or a disciple of Jesus? Jesus? What's holding you back? What's stopping you from pouring out everything to Jesus? Like if you could pour out a little, you'd pour out a little, but you don't want to pour out the whole lot. Why is that? Why is that? And maybe like Mary in this passage, there's some things in our life that we need to smash, and there's some things in our life that we need to break. What is it that you need to smash What is it that you need to break so that you can get to the feet of Jesus? Because there's something holding you back. It might not be a bottle of perfume. It might be a relationship. It might be a business. It might be, I don't don't know. I don't know what is holding you back. But there is something the Holy Spirit is asking you to break or to smash because whatever that thing is, is stopping you from getting close to Jesus, is stopping you from truly worshiping him, is stopping you to get to the feet of Jesus and pour out everything. What is he asking you to give up? 10K salary? 20K salary? What is he asking you to smash or break tonight?
and ask myself that exact same question. Don't miss that Jesus is here. Don't miss that God is here. Don't miss that Holy Spirit is here. Don't miss that the presence is here. Don't miss that. Let me pray for us. Father God, I want to pray that your Holy Spirit will come upon us tonight and that you will do a work in lives tonight. Do work in hearts tonight. And God, will you expose those things that we need to break or that we need to smash or that are holding us back or that we need to let go of, whatever they might be. So Holy Spirit, I pray you come upon this room. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you meander throughout this church, throughout the seats and throughout the hearts and throughout the minds and that you do a work in my life and in each and every person's life in this room tonight. We want to worship you and we want to set aside whatever is holding us back, but we need your help to do that. We need your help to break free from that. We need your help to smash that out of our lives. So Spirit, of the living God, come and do a work in this place that only you are able to do. We desperately, desperately want to be like Mary in this passage, giving up everything, risking everything, because you give up everything and you risked everything so that we could have a relationship with you. So Spirit, come. Spirit, move. Spirit, do your work. We ask these things in your name and with your authority and with your power and with your grace. In the name of Jesus, everyone said, amen. Amen. Bless you.